Today is November 15th, 2012. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neurobiology podcast. Our guest today is Simon Gister. Is that right, Gister? Yeah. He, who is professor of neurobiology and anatomy at Drexel University College of Medicine. His, uh. his laboratory focuses <laughs> on mechanisms of motor control in spinal cord, corticospinal interactions, um, and spinal cord modularity in rodents and frogs, among other things. But we're going to be talking most about the modularity issue. Yeah. Hi, Simon. Hi. Uh, we've got Charlie Wilson. Hello. And Todd Troyer. Hello. And me, I'm your host, Salma Qureshi. Uh, great. So, um, there are a few questions I'd like to cover today. Um, and they're, they're big in general, and hopefully we'll, we'll hit upon each one of them in turn. Um, one is the case for modularity and spinal motor control, which uh -huh. is a big question. Uh, and second, uh, if, if it is truly an organizational principle, where does it come from? Um, and finally, how do we think it's implemented at the level of neural circuitry? So um, we'll, we'll get to each individually, but let's start with the case for and against modularity. So can you review this for us briefly? Sure. So um, the, the issue in, in uh, organizing movement is that uh, animals and, and people have uh, very complex skeletons uh, with the possibility of, of using the limbs in very complicated ways. And um, so, for example, a person um, taking the oil net off their car uh, might take up some posture of the limbs that no one in human history has ever used before. Um, so that, that's, that, that kind of set, tells us about the flexibility of the limb um, and the way we can use it. But that's also a problem for figuring out how to move. And a lot of animals, and, and in, ourselves as well, sometimes have to move very quickly and without much hesitation or decisional planning. Um, and we see that in emergency situations um, and for a lot of the activities we do. We, uh, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. We don't really think about walking. Um, so the walking part of, of um, movements, movements that every human being or every uh, animal has had to make of a particular species, may be organized in a kind of built-in way. and. It, that, that, that those movement mechanisms have to solve this problem of dealing with all these possibilities in terms of the ways that the, the body could be positioned and moved through space. So it's been calculated that if you took all the, the um, bones in the skeleton and just took every joint and flexed and extended it, um, so just two positions of every joint, um, you'd get more possibilities than there are um, atoms in the universe. So a huge number of possibilities. But an animal obviously moves without problems. So one way of dealing with that is to have a, a kind of a, um, set of built-in primitives or modules that can give you um, effectively building blocks for constructing movements that are going to be useful for every individual of a species. So for example, for human beings, uh, we, we know that we are going to want to walk and crawl and uh, maybe to make reaches, and uh, there may be mechanisms in the spinal cord to organize the basic building blocks for those, or at least get us started. And other animals like the wildebeest um, that can get up in, uh, and after being born within a few hours is walking with the herd in the Serengeti. Um, for those animals, these building blocks might be absolutely essential and really the only way of doing business. 
you just use the word motor primitives, and right. I know we're going to be using the word muscle synergies. Can you just differentiate the two? Is there a one-to-one mapping? One is at the level of the output, motor output, is, is the way I understand it, but I might, I'm right. always wrong. So No, 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 you're not wrong at all. So, so um, people use the, the, the term uh, primitives in computer science and in robotics and in, in biology as a sort of a building block. Um, people have talked about kinematic primitives, meaning the way that the limb moves in biology. And people, we talk about motor primitives as groups of muscles acting as a unit. So that would be kinetic. So from the point of view of Newton's laws, we have force equals mass times acceleration. We can define the, a primitive in terms of the pattern of movement, the way movement unfolds, um, or we can define the, it in terms of the forces that drive the movement. And uh, we, we, we're thinking of the motor primitives I talk about are, are really those that are generating the forces that drive movement. And we think that those are, are embedded in the spinal cord and those primitives are formed by use of groups of muscles acting together as a unit in a coordinated way. So synergies would be the, the, the building, kind of the, 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 the basis for these, these force field primitives or motor primitives. So it's so so modularity is is an idea, and it's yeah. it's an it's uh, an observation sort of at the level of output via that that we can see via EMG. What's the evidence that it's actually an organizational principle? Yeah, the the, the way that that you can go about looking at modularity is one one way is is to um, take patterns and find out how you can describe them. So that that's modularity in descriptive terms. I think everybody accepts. Um, so you can use statistical methods um, to pull out the pieces of, of pattern. The question is whether those actually have reality in terms of the neural structures and neural functions. And I, we're beginning to get a sense that, that they are real units. Um, there are, and there are several different directions that, that, that support this. So in, in my own work in the frogs, uh, we've made recordings in, in the spinal cord and we can find neurons that behave appropriately for the motor primitives. So neurons that look like they're effectively distributing the information for the motor primitive or that are triggering the motor primitives. In um, human development, um, people have seen uh, groups of muscles acting as units as infants begin to crawl, learn to walk, and they can see that those same elements appear also in the guinea fowl, or the cat, or the rat. So it looks like like the, the same units are being reused through evolution and through development. Um, and then the final thing, I guess, would be that in clinical conditions, in stroke, we also see that if we use these descriptions in terms of modularity, uh, Vincent Chung, working with uh, Emilio Bizzi, has shown that stroke patients um, have a disorder in the modules where the modules collapse together, but the modules are still there. So it's kind of like thinking of a maybe not being able to play the piano properly. The keys are still there, but the ability to play the tune is, is, got, is lost. And the same thing is also seen uh, by uh, Neptune and Ting and, and Kautzuk, a group uh, looking at locomotion, looking at uh, walking. So we see the same thing in stroke. So there are we so, can I ask what, so, yeah. what, so what does it mean for two primitives to be uh, collapsed in the sense that there's the pattern of muscle activation, some 
in-between thing that you see when either one was activated? or it's, it's, it's like the combination of the two is all that you can do now. So it's, it's as if somebody taped the two keys of a piano together. So that when you when you, you you went to try and play the C, you would all, all get the D as well, and you couldn't separate C from D. Anymore. So an example maybe like I can move my individual fingers uh, individually, but after some kind of stroke, all I could do would be to close my hand. Right. And now I would say, well, I've lost the uh, I've somehow lost the individual primitives that were required to operate the hands separately. But you're saying they're they're all still there. It's just they're being forced to work in a coordinated way somehow. Then, right. That's right. And yeah, and and the the way that you can in in rehabilitation, um, we see them pull apart again. So in rehabilitation of locomotion, so walking on treadmills in rehabilitation, the the elements that have collapsed together, the primitives that have collapsed together, then begin to separate. So it seems like because that's it, it seems like an important uh, distinction in terms of. Uh, because you could have dimension reduction and primitives and so forth without this idea so much of modularity of some of of how independent these things are and the independence of control is also important. Kind of is an additional kind of constraint on the top of this dimension reduction and an additional question about how independent these modules or uh, primitives are. How independent is the control of them? Uh, and how do they kind of relate to each other? So can you explain what you mean? So I was trying to kind of picture uh, the, the dichotomy that you're making. So if in the, at the level of the spinal cord there were no primitives and they were being enforced by some kind of correlated activity from the brain, that would be a super dynamic thing in your in your sense, right? Because every every time you see things happen together, it's just because they were orchestrated to happen together by some master controller. But in the the other extreme is that things are wired so they have to happen together at the level of the spinal cord and that there's no way that brain can can beat that. That you can't fractionate things any more than the spinal cord level allows. Is that the dichotomy? Yeah, I think so. It's just kind of how so if is there a necessary, I mean, can you, do you really have, because uh, if you have some pattern, so suppose you have two distinct patterns, and you can, they're independent, you can control them in, independently, and there's no, any combination of those is roughly equally e easy to be controlled. If there's somehow, you have groups of muscles that tend to go together, but you have overlap and control uh, signals, you may tend to, to excite some combination of those patterns more easily together. And then there's still kind of distinct two-dimensional patterns that you could do, but they're not independently linked, and it may be harder to go in some direction. Some combination of them may be harder than another combination. Now you have some kind of uh, linked primitives. If they're, if, they're, if they're kind of linked to each other, if you're tied to your primitive brother all the time, I don't know how primitive, you're not the... The individual element somehow, or the the elements are not uh, kind of all at the same level. Because no, I think that's absolutely right. I think that the, the, there's been a, a, a there's a tension between a, a, a collection of primitives are a set of constraints. So if all you have are primitives as we define them, motor, the groups of muscles in as being the only way that you can use the the musculoskeletal system then what's going to happen is 
um, you won't be able to make all the possible movements you could make. So they are constraints. And um, the, the example you, you talked about with, with um, moving the individual fingers, um, that kind of fractionation um, I don't think you're going to get from primitives. I think that we have probably a grasp primitive in the hand and some basic ways of opening the hand, but you're not going to be able to play the piano with primitives, at least the, the, not the spinal primitives. So obviously we have all the muscles we have to give us the ability to do very flexible, skillful things, whether you know we're a wildebeest or a person. Um, so that there, ha there have to be times when we use muscles individually, but in terms of this this issue, this degrees of freedom problem and not getting lost in the complexity of the body, then the primitives give us a starting point, and then when we need to make, we, when we need to play the piano sonata, then the brain can go around the spinal uh -huh. primitives. Is, is the way I would think of it that we have we have corticospinal. Uh, corticomotor neuronal controls that would give us that fractionated control when we need it. But in terms of getting up and running, the primitives would get us started in the right zone. Um, so you, you might imagine if someone was playing soccer, there would be some mixture of spinal primitives and a co collection of cortical skills wrapped around those. So I think, I think that for very fast, effective movements, maybe a, like I said, a soccer player or a boxer, you're going to want to use whatever's in the spinal cord because it's it's there for a reason and works well with the mechanics of the limb. But you're also going to want to be able to do all the fine adjustments that are needed. So do you think that some descending pathways from the brain are are uh, exclusively associated with orchestrating the spinal cord primitives and others are designed to override them, like the corticospinal path versus reticulospinal or vestibulospinal pathway? I think there's going to be a mix of the two. I, I, I don't know that you, I would say the corticospinal path is simply overriding because a, a large fraction of the corticospinal tra uh, tract is actually projecting to interneurons, not, not just to the motor neurons. So you have both possibilities, I think. But yeah, I think that, that, that some of the older systems are going to be working more exclusively through primitives, and some of the newer systems that we have are going to be working both through them and around them. And that, that gives us a lot of flexibility. It gives us ways of doing things that um, someone would have done a million years ago, and ways of doing things with a cell phone and a touchscreen that no one in human history has done until maybe a year or two ago. So this kind of gets to the origins question, I guess, somewhat. Yeah. So I guess one perspective is that we're wired through some evolutionary progression to have certain inborn programs, like yeah. you mentioned, um, and that those can be built upon and seed other forms of learning. Um, and so the competing perspective focuses, I guess, more on a, a sort of faster time scale online plasticity right. um, that's uh, that's sort of uh, built around the biomechanics of, of a task rather than yeah. any neural uh Constraints. So, can you can you talk about that a little bit? The, yeah. The two so, so the, the the two possibilities are one is that you you have your body and you discover how it works. The other is that you have your body evolution discovered how it works and gives you these collections of primitives plus whatever else. Um, I think that the, the truth is likely to be a mix of the two. That you you're um, putting. Um, the, the primitives put you in the right ballpark, and then optimization mechanisms and complex learning mechanisms get you up and running um, with those elements and whatever else needs adding, um, making corrections and so on. 
Um, it, it may be that this, this, this is an implementation issue, right? If, if optimization mechanisms will tend to come to low-dimensional representations of movement, which I think we know from control theory they will, then the question is an implementation one in the sense of, so where do the low-dimensional representations come from? Are they built by development on the timescale of the individual or built by evolution on the timescale of the species? And how do we partition the control between those two? And I don't think we know the answer to that in the sense of what is the best way um, to think about it and also what's the best way for an animal to operate. You could argue that you want it, if you can begin to move as quickly as possible, you have an advantage. On the other hand, if you can begin to move as quickly as possible, but ultimately you're going to be clumsier than the other animals around you, you're at a disadvantage. So the, the, you want to be, the ideal is to be somewhere in between where you get moving quicker than the other animals, um, but you also become as skillful or more skillful than the other animals, maybe because you've been practicing for longer, because you began moving earlier. So I think that, that the mixture might, of primitives and optimization learning might give you that. And even in human uh, movements and human skills, we know that coming to um, a task early helps. So I think in Canada, all of the, the top hockey players are born in a couple of months of the year. And it's to do with when the hockey season begins, how big... Um, those players are and how mature they are in, in motor terms at the beginning of that first season. And that has a major <laughs> impact on, on, on the outcome. of. Uh, I mean, it's not, obviously not, not hard and fast. It's not like every hockey player was born in these two months. But th there's a significant fraction who are. There's, there's definitely more than, than in the other months. So, you know, that, that's, that's an instance where, you know, getting up and running quickly matters. So that has to do with how, how you know how much hockey fans their parents are. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe it's the other way. Right? Right, maybe right. it's maybe it's something to do with with uh, the, the months. So how much wanted. do you know how many any sense of how much uh, of this could be uh, learned in utero uh, or in ovo? In, yeah. in the sense that uh, you know you're moving around, and it, at least yep. you're what you push against, and whether you—I I don't know. I mean, is that a reasonable idea? No, I, I think I think it is like a reasonable that? idea. Um, we know that animals do move around in the egg, and they move around obviously in, in the womb. Um, Anita Bradley's been been exploring this in terms of understanding what, what the, in the chick, what the movements in the chick accomplish in terms of how how movements organized. But on the other hand, there are experiments where. People have taken animals and completely paralyzed them through a long period of development. And then once the paralysis is taken off, the animal gets up and effectively gets up and walks. It, it behaves normally, even though it's had no motor experience. So that's not to say that, you know, still there may be, may be a skill component that's missing. That, that animal may never maybe move as well as it might have done. But a lot is, is there a priori, but there's tuning. But I think this is... These are still questions we're all exploring. I don't think this is hard and fast rules. So the number of, sort of the, the dimensionality of the, of the motor primitives, yeah. it, do you think it's a, it's a fixed number? Or are they like, some people have 
you know, dimension 10, and some people are dimension 15. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, so well, I think that, that in terms of the, if there's something that's built in by evolution, then, then you'd imagine that every person has the same dimensionality. Or the dimensionality that they acquired genetically, which right, wouldn't necessarily which be the same. It wouldn't necessarily be the same, but it, it's hard for me to imagine that um, whole blocks of, of tissue are, I guess, whole blocks of tissue could be missing, maybe, but... Um, the, the ways that, that we're thinking of the primitives is that they're, they're good ways of exciting the limb. So it's uh, dropping one of the primitives out could have pretty disastrous consequences. You'd have to make it up somewhere else. But I think in terms of the, the learned primitives, then what primitives you learn and how you learn them will mean that we, we're like, if we have learned elements, learned primitives, in addition to built-in ones, those are going to depend on the activities we engage in and... Um, our aptitudes and so on. So do you view those learned primitives as basically embedded in the same circuit or in a different circuit? I think they're probably in different circuits, maybe in, in, the, in cortex um, would be one way of thinking about it. The, the, the long loop reflex systems might give you a whole bunch of new um, primitives at, at the cortical level that would be this kind of wrap-up. We have a low opinion of the spinal cord in general. It seems like uh, at one time there was an argument about whether the spinal cord was conscious or not. Now we right. we don't even give it credit for being able to learn things. <laughs> uh, do you think that there's that any kind of learning happens in these spinal circuits at all? No, it definitely does. We we do know that, that the spinal cord can learn. So um, there are experiments in the frog um, that where a frog that the spinal cord alone over a, a period of a year, um, making movements to remove irritants from the skin becomes more and more efficient at it. So we know that, that the spinal cord on its own can learn things. But we also know that um, the descending systems can change the way the spinal cord processes information. And so work of, work of John Walpole in particular um, has shown that we can take reflexes, um, basically the, the, um, the response to a perturbation, and modify that um, over long periods of training. And we can do that um, voluntarily, and we do it all the time, in all likelihood, kind of subconsciously. And so, a, a very, for me, a very striking example is that um, the Achilles tendon reflex um, is very different in highly trained sports people. So, this is work by Hans Holtborn in Denmark. He showed that um, a, a trained sportsman um, has a very strong Achilles tendon reflex. But um, a person in the Danish National Ballet who is equally athletic uh, but in a completely different skill set has a very, very um, much suppressed Achilles tendon reflex. And that seems to be associated with the kinds of movement they're engaged in. And this is not something that's consciously controlled. It's just the way that their spinal cords run now after all the activities they've been engaged in. So there's a lot of plasticity for sure. Or that could be a self-selection process. You never made it into the ballet because you had too much of a Achilles <laughs> So to, to go further with spinal cord and, and get into the neural implementation part of it, so you've been working on the neural basis of, of motor primitives and spinal cord yeah. and um, have reported there, there are sets of dedicated interneurons that organize yeah. individual spinal um, primitives. Can you talk about some of that? Yeah, so we've, we've made recordings in the spinal cord um, using um, electrodes that allow us to pick up single units, single neurons in the spinal cord. And we found that there are collections of neurons in the spinal cord which um, seem to distribute 
um, the excitation to the individual muscles, motor pools, in the same proportions that you need for the synergies. So it, you can think of it as the neuron basically wiring to the appropriate motor pools to build the synergy. Uh, and the way we, we um, detect that is we, every time that the neuron spikes, um, we take a little snippet of the muscle activity of all the muscles, and by averaging all of those together, we can detect that there's a connection between the neuron and those motor pools. And the same technique is used if you want to see how a, a cortical cell connects to the muscles in, in, uh, for a cortical motor, motor neuronal projection. So it's the same technique. And in the spinal cord, we find neurons that project to groups of muscles, and those groups of muscles match either one for one or 75% to the, the, the motor primitives. Um, so that, that, that kind of fits with the, the idea that there really is a distribution system. Um, the other thing that we found is uh, uh, neurons that seem to be in, involved in um, setting up the motor primitives or recruiting them. And there it looks like there are neurons that, at least thus far, um, their activity ramps up and when it gets to a threshold, um, then a motor primitive turns on. So you can think of that as being kind of like, like a, a, the, the evidence or the data for when to go. And by ramping this activity up and getting to a threshold, you would, the, the, in, a, in simple terms, the idea would be that you trigger the primitives. So you, you'd press the piano key effectively. So do you have any idea what that triggering, like neurally, what that triggering would be? Like what is what kind of threshold would it be and how would it be implemented? I mean, do you have any, any thoughts about that? Um, I think that, I think that we, 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 we see a burst uh, of activity. And that would be consistent with some kind of... Um, ionic-based collection of neurons to produce a specific dynamic. Um, but in, t in real terms, we don't know. So you see a burst in the ramping, the neurons that ramp up? or No, no. Following the ramp, we see a burst. So I would think, I think of it like, like as, as the primitive being almost like a, a, an action potential writ large, like a big action potential is one way of thinking of it. But I mean, a, a burst effectively. Which, which is the same kind of picture that I think Larry Jordan had this idea of, of synergy bursts, and, and that fits also with Stan Grillner's idea to some extent. So, the, so you're saying that the neurons that are part of the synergy at the beginning burst, they're the same neurons? I'm trying to localize where that burst is. I mean, in a hypothetical kind of way. I, right. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think that, the, that there's a burst. And that burst is distributed to these distribution cells and drive those distribution cells. But those distribution cells, I don't think, are themselves bursty. I don't think that I don't think you can think of the distribution system as being bursty. It's 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 almost like a, a, a kind of a, a, a to me at least it seems like it should be a level almost like a motor pool, but a, but a motor pool that is um, actually recruiting groups of muscles rather than a single muscle. Um, and I think that the bursting has to be higher level than that. But in terms of what it is and how it's organized, I, I, I don't think we know. I don't know. The synergies themselves don't have very important time courses because yeah. the actual movement is determined by the analog envelope of the synergy itself. They're not binary things that just trigger something, but well, they are actually... The, the shape of the movement. Is that not right? The shape not, of the not quite right. At least in, in, in the, the frog um, and in the, um, the locomotor system, they seem to, they're bursts, and those bursts have a, in the frog, have a fixed duration. 
So to get the envelope of the movement, you actually overlay several of them. So it's almost like 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 tiling um, the motor pattern by or like like playing a tune where you 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 press the same key multiple times, um, and each time that the effectively that the key is pressed that you trigger the primitive, you'll get the same duration burst. Now, in the 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 intact frog, we know that those burst durations are modulated, but in the spinal cord, they always have the same duration. They're two hundred seventy five milliseconds long. Which is quite—I mean, it's—it's—it's it's, it's very stereotyped, and it was kind of surprising to us when we first saw that. And we've tried to 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 change that time duration in a variety of ways by um, vibrating muscles so that we change the feedback systems, or and nothing we do in the spinal frog changes that time scale. It's fixed a little fixed unit of uh, of two hundred seventy-five milliseconds duration. So how does that get read out into force in the muscle, which can have an so if you want to produce a longer force, you have to hit this, yeah, this primitive over and over again. Right, right. You, 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 yeah, you can't just sort of ramp up and keep going. But that's not actually unlike the experience of very long um, movements, very long continuous movements end up in human beings even being, being discretized. There's actually a, a, a ripple and a, and a continuous set of units, it appears, rather than being, a, being able to produce a, a stable plateau of forces or is... We can do it, but it's but it's it's quite difficult, and very very long slow movements are very very difficult to make. So um, that's not to say I think that, that as human beings and even the intact frog can do can vary the, the pulse width, but the spinal cord doesn't. In, in, at least the frog spinal cord doesn't. So would that mean that the, that that you'd have uh, that you could the movements that you would have in, as part of these primitives would be kind of have a strong tendency to be a set time or pace. I guess it's a question of yeah. And then you'd have to alter away from the primitive just like some conscious thing to to change. Something on top of that would have to extend it or slow it down or be flexible in the rate that you do things. Yeah, you'd have, you'd have to recruit them either sequentially or... I, I mean, what we see is that the, the, the frog spinal cord movements are relatively slow compared to the intact animal. So the intact animal is a lot, a lot faster. So if anything, the pulses are getting shorter, not longer, in, in, um, because the movements are brisker. But that 275 millisecond pulse, with multiples of that through a, through a wiping behavior, the wipe itself is, takes maybe 400 milliseconds. And it seems like from anywhere in the workspace that the you start the limb of the animal, it makes the movement in the same time. So you're talking about the frog. I just want to yeah, frog wiping movement. Yeah. A, a hind limb um, wiping movement is what we're talking about. Right. So the, the, they they have this a lot of the same characteristics as a human reaching movement would have, in the sense of the, their velocity profile is bell shaped, it's smooth effectively, and straight. Um, that the end of the, the limb moves in a straight line, um, and they do that same movement from anywhere in their workspace in about the same time. And, but to do that, they have to basically take these, these individual bursts and shift them around a bit, so an amplitude modulate them. So you're basically taking this burst and you're making it the burst stronger and maybe changing its timing a little bit within, within this, this 400 millisecond period. So things like to being able to be born with, to be able to walk quickly, you'd also... So I was just kind of wondering about the relationship between these primitives and locomotion, where you have this rhythmic 
pattern generator kind of thing. So this is an eliciting, in this language, I guess would elicit a sequence of primitives uh, in some sequence with some timing that presumably is also, or could also be very well built in. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and is it different than a primitive? Is that? Well, I think that what we, we're talking about, we can think of this as being being a hierarchy. So at the lowest level, the building blocks might be the, the, these these bursts of, of muscles. Then we, we can, each of those collections of bursts put together would produce the individual strokes or a kinematic movement, like a reach from A to B and stop. And those collections of strokes put together would give you a step cycle if you're walking. So you, you want to flex the limb, and then you want to extend the limb, and then you want to have a, a propulsive drive. So, and to get that overall sequence, the likelihood is you've got a, would have a rhythm generator sequencing those. That's what we think is happening. And um, the small level, the lowest level building blocks give you the ability to adapt that to the conditions that locomotion finds itself in. So if you trip over an obstacle, then you can recruit one of these building blocks to lift the leg over without changing the rest of the rhythm. So it gives you a lot of flexibility in building movement and a lot of capability at the outset. So that seems would seem to argue, and then if you have these ramp ramping neurons that show ramping activity to trigger uh, synergies, you might, I mean, there's a question you might expect the locomotive uh, rhythm pattern generator to be in the same type of circuit in the sense that the, it also would have to trigger synergies in the right time and have to decide on which time. So do you think that these ramp neurons either are separate from a, of a pattern generator for locomotion or part of the same kinds of circuitry that's kind of hierarchically controlling and playing out synergies? Yeah, I, th I think it's part of the same. I think the pattern generator... As, as we think of it, consists of a rhythm generator and then a pattern shaping layer, which is the, the uh, Ilya Ryback and, and Dave McRae's idea about how it's organized. And then in that pattern shaping layer, which is where you sort of adapt the, the pattern to the circumstances, there are a collection of primitives. So these ramping neurons will be sitting in that pattern shaping layer. I see. And I think are driven by the rhythm generator. At least that's my current conception. Um, uh, obviously, that this is remains to be seen, right? <laughs> well, thanks so much for joining us, Simon Gister. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thank you. Thank you.